And we will be reading the whole of this chapter this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Excuse me. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hills of Hakalah, opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 men chosen of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hills of Hakilah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai answered, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came uh, came to the people by night. And there Saul lay sleeping in the camp with his spears stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner... And the people, uh, and Abner and the people all lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, "God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time." But David said to Abishai, "Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless?" David said, "Furthermore." As the Lord lives, the the Lord shall strike him down, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away. And no man saw, or knew it, or awoke. For they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the Lord your king. Oh, your Lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is, and the jug of water that was by his head. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. So now... Do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea 
as one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes today. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and seek God's wisdom as we come to study it together. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the way in which it's recorded that we can read it with such clarity. And we thank you that your spirit moves within us, that we don't just see these words on paper and understand the meaning of each word, but that we understand the spiritual significance of this. We pray that you would work in us to deepen our knowledge of these spiritual matters this morning, that our faith in you might grow, that our trust in you might be multiplied, that in all we do, we might fall on your mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to dive right in and pick up where we were last week as we finished off in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now this morning as we look at this passage, I've broken it down into into three points. Uh, Firstly, we see picking up the trail, uh, which is the first five verses of this chapter, which really do reset us into the David and Saul part of the the narrative of 1 Samuel. Secondly, in verses 6 to 16, we see what we might call a matter of integrity taking place. And then from verses 17 to 25, we see the foolishness of disbelief. So as I said, picking up the trail in our first point. These first five verses of the chapter really do serve to get us back on track with what's happening with the the dynamic, the relationship, as you might want to put it, uh, between David and Saul. That's really important for us to focus on at this point in time. As you might remember from 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. Samuel, the last of the judges in Israel, has just passed away. The whole of 1 and 2 Samuel serve as a a time of transition for the people of Israel. It's a time of transitioning from the judges to the kings. It's how will the kings go with this responsibility? Will the kings lead the people in righteousness? And, And how will the people of Israel respond to their kings? How will Israel respond to God. This time of transition is really ramping up here. And as we get into the text of it, from verse 1, we see these people known as the Ziphites pop up in 1 Samuel. Now, they haven't been a, a big presence in this book before. But the, both, both times they appear, both in chapter 26 and in chapter 23, they're a tribe of people who, who come to Saul, a family who come to Saul and say, We know you want to catch David. We know where he's hiding. We'll lead you to him. Seems to be a mistake repeated. 
As we saw in the kids' talk, this idea of repeating mistakes isn't an uncommon thing. It's a not again moment. Surely these guys aren't going to betray David again. But we have what it seems here as a betrayal once more. They come, they tell Saul where David's hiding. And as soon as they come onto the scene and tell Saul where David is hiding, and Saul's response to that, to take 3,000 men and go and hunt David, these verses, as simple as they are, give us insight to Saul's heart. They show us that while he was overcome with grief in chapter 24, realising David meant no harm to him despite all the evil he'd done to him, his heart was unchanged. It's a a simple narrative in these five verses, but it shows so much of where where Saul's spiritual state is at. He he continues in unrepentance. The matters of people's hearts are, of course, a big issue in in 1 and 2 Samuel. And what condition do we find people's hearts in response to God's word? Saul sadly continues in hatred. The desire of his heart is not the things of God. It is not God's holiness. It is not righteousness. It is not faithful worship. It is David's life. That is the desire of his heart. To hunt, to kill, to remove David. He pursues David despite just having told him he's not going to kill him. His grief at realising how badly he'd mistreated David just seems like a really, really foggy memory. A distant memory of the past that the details just aren't quite clear enough to focus on. See, these five verses, we're not focusing on them much today, but they really do get us back into the context of Saul's murderous intent. We had that interlude, as you might call it, last week. We still stuck these chapters together, 24 to 26 together, with, uh, with Nabal and Abigail and all those sorts of things taking place. But here we see Saul's murderous intent. And these first five verses leave us with the question, how will David respond? Is David going to be a man of his word? Does David have any integrity in the face of this incredibly disappointing response from Saul? Will David sink to Saul's level? When I was in youth group, one of, my, um, one of my leaders told me this saying, and it stuck with us, and we probably misused it talking to other guys in youth group. The, the saying was, never lower yourself to an idiot's level because they will always beat you with experience. It's catchy. It stuck with me. I probably abused it. But we, we, we wonder if David, who's just shown us in chapter 25, that he is only too human that he is a sinner like the rest of us, will he keep his word? Will he be faithful to God or will he lower himself to Saul's level? The scene is set. Saul has made his move in picking up David's trail. The ball is now in David's court. The, the conflict of significant, of significant seems unavoidable. How will David respond? And this brings us to uh, verse 6 onwards, which really shows us that this is a matter of integrity. And while calling the second point a matter of integrity may not necessarily capture the the entire flow of the narrative, as I've just alluded to very strongly, probably more than alluded, uh, I believe that question marks over Saul's integrity, question marks over David's integrity, 
are underlying issues made even more important by Samuel's passing. Will Israel have a king who has integrity or not? Because both of these guys, it's a king and the future king, do they have integrity? We see Saul has given his word to David and he's broken his word. We seem to see Saul having very little integrity left. What about David? This is the question. He has said he will not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. How does he respond? Because while it might just seem like it's a political situation going on here, the spiritual ramifications of this are understood by David. That if he lifts his hand against Saul, as much of a bozo as Saul has been, he is lifting his hand also against God. He is saying, no, God, I'm not happy with what you've got in place right now. I'll do it my way. There is inherent rejection of God to some degree if David does lift his hand against God. So it's not only integrity according to David's word, but it's also spiritual integrity that's on the line here. So we pick up from verse 6. David has sent spies out. He he knows for sure that that Saul is coming against him with 3,000 men. And David asks the people, who's going to come down with me into Saul's camp? And we see here that it's a stealth mission. It's exciting. It's the stuff that kids dream of. And we see in verse 8 that the guy who goes with David, Abishai, he thinks it's a stealthy assassination attempt. Not what David has in mind, but it's how some of the people viewed this. Which is why later on when David talks to the people, talks to people in the camp, he says... Someone came into your camp with a desire to kill Saul and you let him. Now, it's not a discrepancy. David could have said two people came into your camp, but he emphasized one of them wanted to kill Saul. So Abishai, he volunteers. He and David, they, they, they sneak down into the camp of David. Later on, Abner gets chewed out for not putting a better guard on the king, and rightly so. But these two men make it into an enemy camp. A war camp. Now we see God allowed this to happen later on. But as they come into the camp, once more, we have Saul completely at David's mercy. They don't just get into the camp, they actually make it into the king's tent. They're by his head. This time when Saul is at David's mercy, he's not even conscious, he's fast asleep. He's even more unguarded, even more unaware than he was previously. In verse 8, this is where Abishai thinks it's, it's kill time. Let's remove this problem from Israel. As we've seen previously, David's man puts a, a spiritual spin on a very worldly mindset. God has allowed for this to happen. This is a time where you can finally kill him. The Lord's delivered him into your hand. David, please let me kill him. I'll I'll make it quick even. Just one strike of the spear and he'll be gone. It'll be sorted out. This is what God has led us here to do, is what Abishai is saying to David. But again, David knows better. He knows what it is to strike or even approve one of his men to strike against Saul, who is the Lord's anointed. 
It is rejection of the Lord's anointed. It is rejection of God's man for that time. Now, if we take a step back from what's happening in Israel at the time, just a little bit to look at a bit more high level. Saul is certainly a bad king. Saul hasn't led God's people in the ways that they should be walking in. But he does serve Israel a spiritual good in a certain regard. Back in chapter 8, people of Israel came to Samuel and said, give us a king like the nations around us. God gave them a king like the nations around them. God is using Saul to remind the people that they don't need a king like the nations. They need a king like God. They need a man after God's own heart, not a king like the nations. Now, some people in Israel learnt this lesson, others perhaps not so much. But zooming back into in Saul's tent, as David and Abishai are having this conversation, which if you listen to any, um, it, some of the more emphatic audio Bibles, the, the dramatised audio Bibles, there's a lot of whispering taking place for this conversation in it. Remember, they're, they're talking over the top of Saul who's asleep in his tent. David, goes, David picks up the conversation and says, don't destroy him. Do not destroy him. Who can lift his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now, just as a, a note on that verse, that verse is one which has been abused by, by church leaders in the past, even recently. Don't question me. I'm the Lord's anointed. God has me here at the moment. You be a good little person. Do exactly what I tell you, no matter what I say, because I have the authority here. That is not how this verse is to be taken. There has been a clear physical anointing of Saul, just as there was a clear physical anointing of David. And unlike many of those pastors who would spin that today to say that we are to be unchallenged, we do want to be challenged, we do want to grow, David does not misapply this truth. He maintains a godly focus. He dropped the ball last week. But we should be encouraged that he seems to be back on track at the moment spiritually. Rather than kill Saul, David and Abishai take the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they take the spear as well. Now many commentators seem to think it's very funny in asking the question, what's the point of the spear? Which I mean, it's probably a bit sad that I'd read enough commentaries. I laughed when I read that a few times this week. Now, what's the point of the spear? Well, if you remember back to chapter 22, verse 6, Saul's sitting under the tree and he's holding the spear in his hand. In that time, in that culture, the spear was often a sign of the royal rule. It's a scepter, as you might remember. This is a sign of Saul's rule. And it's taken by David. So once more, we ask questions. Is David taking Saul's spear so that he doesn't have to kill him, but is he about to start a coup? Is he about to wave Saul's scepter around and claim the kingship for himself and lock Saul up somewhere? Is that what's happening? See, we, in the back of our mind, as we understand these things, this is what the Hebrew narrative is getting us to think through. They take the spear and the jug of water. The jug of water alone would prove that David did not have murderous intent, but there is significance, and a lot of significance to taking the spear as well. So they have the jug, they have the spear. Verse 12, David and Abishai, they creep out of the camp. 
And we learn two things about how God has worked here because this is not just David doing this. We see God work. He worked in two ways. One, he has protected David. He has protected David, absolutely. And two, he has shown that Saul is absolutely defenceless and helpless before David. God is working in this. This is not just two men being really good at sneaking around. This is God causing the camp to be asleep. God is working. So they escape from the camp and they go to the safety of a hill far off with a great distance between themselves and the camp of Saul. And David called out from that hill to to the people and to Abner. Now some people say that David is a coward to be so far away and calling out here. But I think when you consider the fact he's just crept into Saul's camp with one other person, the, the accusation of cowardice doesn't really hold much water here, does it? It's about as good, do a good job holding water as a sieve would. It's not very accurate whatsoever. There's wisdom here, though. In verse 14, he calls out, not to Saul, but to the people and to Abner. Abner hears it and he doesn't recognize David's voice. And who are you calling out to the king? He's trying to sleep. It's the middle of the night. What on earth are you doing? And David replies. David replies in a way that makes it pretty clear who he is. As we read this, we could read this as being very insulting. Are you a man? as we go on, we see that while David is putting some hard truths to Abner here, and later on he puts some really hard truths to Saul in front of the men, he's being honest. Abner is known as a valiant warrior. Abner is a a brilliant strategist. But Abner, are you a man? You didn't do your job tonight. Your life should be forfeit for not protecting the Lord's anointed. And if you want proof that you didn't do your job tonight, I have here the jug and the spear that I just took from Saul's head. So we go back to the matter of integrity. David's integrity is on full display here. The people chasing David are chasing David because they believe that David wants to kill Saul. They believe that he's a servant who has lost integrity for trying to take the throne away from Saul. But we see here proof, objective unavoidable proof that David does not want to kill Saul. David's integrity is on full display here and it's a mirrored theme of what we see in chapter 24 when David goes out with the corner of Saul's robe. I could have killed you but I don't want to kill you. But where chapter 24 was private and pretty much just between David and Saul, this is public. This is being yelled out. The camp is woken up by this. So God has protected David. God has made Saul, even with 3,000 men, completely defenceless before David. And David's integrity has been cleared of all charges of seeking the life of the king. He is not into regicide. He does not want to kill the king. If I wanted to kill him, I could have. Here's my proof. It really is a matter of integrity. And uprightness. 
It's a matter of holiness in many regards. And you cannot have real integrity. You cannot truly be upright and you cannot truly be holy without God. We see Saul trying over and over again on his own efforts to have those things and he falls short. David has those things and what's the difference? David is a man after God's own heart. David loves the Lord. David has a healthy fear of the Lord, that reverent fear of God. David has messed up big time previously. Even just in the last chapter, a huge overreaction where he's going to kill every man in a household for an insult. The next chapter, 27, he he messes up again and not for the last time. But his integrity is confirmed here as one who loves the Lord. As one who respects the commands of God. As one who respects the anointed of God. For so long, David has been plagued by this claim that he lacks integrity. Even those words of Abner in chapter 25, that he's just a runaway slave with nothing to his name, that he is a no one. All of those things are put to shame. All of those charges are proven false. As we look then at verses 17 through to 25, in contrast to David's integrity, we obviously have Saul. Now, unlike his cousin Abner, Saul does seem to recognize the voice of David pretty quickly. Is it you, David? And David replies that it is him. And then he asks some really, really hard questions of Saul. And again, David is not being rude in asking these questions. But he is showing that Christian backbone he showed in chapter 4, isn't he? That we are to turn the other cheek as Christians, but when there's a time to speak truth, we can speak boldly. It starts off with pretty much two interesting questions. Why are you chasing me? Why are you pursuing me? Which we know is Saul wants to kill him. And the second question is, what evil is in my hand? Now, if we're cynical, we could see the second question is really interesting. Isn't theft evil? Well, David's saying, what evil is in my hand? Isn't he literally holding a spear in a jug of water that is just stolen? See, if we're cynically minded, we could look at it like that. But we do know that David gives the spear back and he seemed to intend that all along. We presume he gave the water jug back, although we're not told. I found that interesting. I only mentioned giving the spear back. What if Saul gets thirsty? How's he going? Anyway, beside the point, that's where my mind goes sometimes. See, David is giving the symbol of Saul's rule back. What evil is in my hand? If I wanted to kill you, rather than seeing this as theft and therefore evil, if I wanted to kill you, what evil is in my hand? I'm holding your spear, the weapon that my man wanted to kill you with. It is right here. In fact, rather than having evil in my hand, this is proof that I've restrained my man from doing evil against you. There is no evil in David's hand, and why are you chasing me? Why do you want to kill me? Saul, has God stirred you up against me? What an amazingly humble question to ask. Has God stirred you up against me? If God has, I'll make an offering. The second alternative David seems to come up with is, if you're listening the advice of men who continue to say that I want to kill you when there's so much proof already that I don't, may those men be cursed before the Lord. 
In either case, David is falling completely on the mercies of Jehovah. We read in verses 18 to 20 what follows the patterns of of formal courtly speech of the time. And in this, David shows his humility once more. He says, I'm a flea. I'm unworthy of the king's attention. It's not just nice words. It seems to be how David does view himself before Saul. Wonderful, godly humility. And once more, Saul is affected. I've sinned, he says. He continues, I've played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Now, foolishness seems to be the mark of the unbeliever through these chapters, isn't it? Remember Nabal in the previous chapter? Name meant fool. This is a slightly different rendering of that here because it's not a name. But it's that same theme coming through here. I have played the fool, I have erred exceedingly, says Saul. It's a good start, but it's just a start. He needs to go further. Remember what David said about who can lift his hand against the Lord's anointed and remain guiltless? It is a sin against the Lord God Almighty to lift your hand against the Lord's anointed. That is why it's wrong for David to lift his hand against Saul. But what is Saul doing? Saul is lifting his hand against the Lord's other anointed man. Saul has said in chapter 24, surely, David, you're going to be the next king. There seems to be some recognition that David will be king. Previously, Saul's acknowledged the spirit of the Lord is upon David and was no longer with him, leading to David being the one to assume the throne later on when Saul died. There's not true repentance, is it? We used to use this example at at youth group about what it is to apologise to someone. Now, I won't pick on people here. We used to pick on youth leaders who were in the room. But in my life, if I was sitting down with both my brothers, Brendan and Ryan, hypothetically, if I was to punch Ryan in the face and turn to my brother, Brendan, and say, I'm sorry, do you forgive me? He doesn't have any real right to forgive me for that, does he? Because I haven't committed the offence against him. I can say, I'm sorry you had to watch that and mean that, but he can't actually forgive me for hitting Ryan. Saul's sin is not just against David, Saul's sin is against God. And he never turns to God to apologise for his sin. And ultimately, all sin is against God. People may be affected by our sins, but all sin is against God's holy name and against God's holy law. Saul does not recognise that. He's had his hand lifted against the Lord's anointed for so long. But because he hasn't truly believed, he he hasn't repented either. And because he hasn't repented, he hasn't truly believed. Disbelief is nothing more than foolishness. Chapters 25 and 26 both show us this. David, in verses 22 to 25, he gives back the scepter. He gives back the spear. And he asks that God might repay all those who are righteous accordingly. What we see in these interactions is that Saul is not among them. 
Saul is not to be counted among the righteous at this point. I'm not saying he definitely is later on either, but there's more narrative to cover yet. I don't want to spoil the ending. See, disbelief is foolishness. How many times has Saul been met with goodness, godly goodness, in response to the evil that he has tried to inflict? How many times must he see his failings over and over again and still not turn to God? He has continued pursuit of David, chasing him, driving him away from home, leaving David with no inheritance, as David says, of the land, which we're going through Joshua at the moment. The Lord gave that land to his people. They're driving one of their own out of the inheritance that God gave to his people in the promised land. This is a great sin that Saul has committed against David, but still no repentance. His actions against David were, were foolish, but the greater foolishness was in ignoring God. David, right now in this conversation they're having, is showing Saul what it means to rest entirely on God for your very survival. David has left his men apart from Abishai. David is exposed before 3,000 men. Yes, there's a distance between them. He's putting everything on the line here. David is revealing to Saul what it means to trust God for very survival. God who has worked in David's heart to, to allow Saul to survive these two very recent interactions, encounters with David. But Saul still doesn't hold to the promises or the commands and the law of the Lord God Almighty. Over and over again, he begins to say the right things, but doesn't follow it through. We get to the end here, and Saul says to David, You're my son. Come home. But notice in the last verse where David goes and where Saul goes, David departed on his way, Saul returned to his place. David didn't go home. Because while Saul has said the right things, a murderous intent still lingers. Chapter 27, verse 1. David says this in his heart. Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. That's what he's thinking. Saul's still out for him. We see in Saul that the, the foolishness of unbelief is to try in our own strength to be holy over and over and over again. To fall short of God's standard because our efforts will never be enough, but never asking God to help. To keep going back to trying over and over and over again and still failing. David shows us the alternative. David shows us wisdom. David shows us what it is to trust God, what it is to rest in his mercies, And we see that as a result of his faith in God, David acts with wisdom. Even in not just spiritual matters, but physical matters, he calls out from a distance to the camp. He's not sitting right at the door to the camp. That'd be foolish. He has wisdom in how he conducts his business. He calls out from a distance. He isn't reckless in that regard. He sees the opportunity to take things that prove his integrity because he knows he's not just representing himself, but God as well. And where he can show his integrity and show God as a result, he does. 
His integrity comes from his wisdom, and his wisdom comes from God, as all wisdom does. We should be reflecting on David's spiritual awareness. He's a sinner, but he does show us encouragingly that even sinners, moved by the Holy Spirit, can have a wonderful spiritual awareness. Something that Saul, with his worldly focus, just doesn't seem to be able to grasp. David knows what it is to go against the Lord. David knows that it is futility and foolishness, and he acts accordingly. In what we see of David in this chapter, we see, we see of course, in Saul many, many warnings, and may we pray to not be like Saul in, in rejecting God when we see him at work, when we hear of him, may we listen but in this chapter, we see in David that, that he was not wise because that's the way he was born. He was wise because, as Jesus says in John 3, he had been born again. And that led him to, even in times of great risk and great trial and great tribulation, trust in the Lord God Almighty alone, to only trust God, to trust God above and beyond anything else when we come later on to David coming to the throne when he's anointed the word used for his anointing is Nagiv which might not mean much to you but that's prince Melech is king in the Hebrew David is anointed as prince there is an ultimate king we see here transition of power. We see a scepter moving from one to the other. But may each one of us pray fervently for ourselves and for one another that we might be granted the wisdom that David has from the one whose scepter will never be stolen, from the one whose rule will never be broken. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you once more for your word. And as we come to the conclusion of these three beautiful chapters of, of 1 Samuel, chapters 24 to 26, we, we see so many wonderful things that we are to learn. We see things there that challenge us to our core. We see areas where, where we have failed as Saul or David or Abner have failed. So may we fall upon your mercies. May we trust you. May you work in us to use us for your glory. We pray that we might be faithful ambassadors for you, not seeking self-promotion, but promotion of your kingdom and your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.